Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. This is Lily Smith, your host for this episode of All in a Day's Work. I'm chatting today with Allison Emanuel. Allison, welcome. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Allison, you and I went to Bard College together back in 2012. And then after our sophomore year, you transferred here to NYU, where you completed your bachelor's degree. Can you just briefly tell me what you studied once you got to NYU and what you've been doing since? Yeah, so I studied history at NYU. Then I actually taught at a charter school for a year. And then I went on to get a master's from Teachers College at Columbia in the teaching of social studies, so secondary social studies education. And now I am a high school teacher at Herbert H. Lehman High School in the Bronx. During that year before you started at Columbia Teachers College, when you were working at the charter school, can you talk a little bit about that experience? What was surprising about it? Yeah, so that was definitely one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life. So just for a little bit of reference. So I grew up in a fairly affluent suburb in Westchester, you know, one of the most affluent districts in the country, very well-resourced school, extremely qualified teachers. And then the school I worked at was in the poorest congressional district in the country. It was in the South Bronx, and it was just a completely different world from the world I was accustomed to. Most of the students, I think almost all of the students received either free or reduced lunch, which means their household income was either at or below the poverty line. The school was not particularly well-resourced. The teachers were not experienced at all. It was a very trying and difficult year, and it was, it was very eye-opening. Do you think that that experience made you think differently about your own education and your own privilege? Yeah, absolutely. I always knew I went to a very good school because people had told me that I went to a good school. But I think just really seeing these vast differences in terms of you know, the allotment of resources and the services available and the extracurriculars and the trips that we took in my high school. I mean, all of these things that I just thought it was, I thought it was normal that you had like an orchestra in your school or a wind ensemble and a chorus and these really enriching art classes and you would take trips. And I just totally realized that most sort of New York City public school students are not having experiences like I have and the school's in many ways are are stretched very, very thin. You also mentioned that a lot of the teachers didn't have a lot of experience. And you also, when you had that first role in the charter school, didn't have much experience. You were pretty young. Did you ever struggle with confidence or with imposter syndrome during that time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when I first started at the charter, I was 22, fresh out of NYU. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I felt really lost. I felt really overwhelmed. I knew especially that these students needed the best possible instructors because they had been dealt so many hurdles in their lives and they needed the best. And they were getting like this extremely inexperienced, clueless 22-year-old who knew absolutely nothing about education. So I, re- I really struggled with that a lot. And I, I definitely felt very inadequate my first year. I still, I mean, I'm in my fifth year now and I still feel inadequate in many ways because there really is so much to learn in this profession and you're never done learning. I mean, you're 
you're sort of a lifelong learner in teaching. You ultimately did decide that you wanted to pursue a master's degree and then a career in education. So what was the moment when you decided that you wanted to continue to pursue that career? So I don't know if I had one sort of particular, you know, light bulb moment. I think just the transformation I saw in myself after that first year of, you know, being completely in over over my head and overwhelmed to, you know, by May, June, feeling like I sort of had a hold on what I was doing. I definitely wasn't sure I'd be in the profession for the rest of my life, but I felt confident enough that I'd put in five years. That was always my plan. You know, five years, no matter what, I'm going to put in five years of teaching and then I'll reassess after those five years and see if it's a career I want to stay with or if I want to go in a different direction. And actually, if you look at attrition rates for teaching, only about 50% of teachers will still be in the workforce after five years. So I think my sort of feelings about it were fairly similar to other teachers in that (laughs) five years seems to be the point where they either stay with it or go on to something else. What was the process like for landing your current position? So I actually just went sort of the old-fashioned route. I went to a job fair. I saw at Columbia that there was going to be a job fair for high schools in the Bronx. I knew I wanted to work in the Bronx, and I just handed out my resume to all of the different assistant principals at the booths. So just having NYU and Columbia on my resume, I got a lot of callbacks for demos. Demos are just when you go into the school and teach a brief, maybe 15, 20-minute lesson to show how you teach. So I got invited to demo at Lehman a couple days later. I did the demo. I really liked the students and I liked the administrators. And then I got the offer the job on the spot that day. So that's how I got my current job. As we're recording this interview, it's the end of 2020. This has obviously been a very challenging year for a lot of people, but in particular for educators. So can you talk about what March was like for you when the school started shutting down? What was that experience like being a teacher? Yeah, March was extremely difficult. Every other major district in New York was closed. So New York City schools stayed open. And unfortunately, I got COVID in March. And about half of the teachers I work with, I'd say, also got COVID. I mean, we all had it that same two-week stretch. So March was very stressful in the sense of being sick and being concerned that I would get my family sick. But then also, it was extremely difficult to teach because March sort of revealed a lot of the existing inequalities in the schools. I thought going into teaching that every household in America had Wi-Fi, which couldn't be more wrong. So the kids didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have personal computers. Many of them didn't have tablets. So they were using their cell phone to try to get onto Zoom calls and trying to do their assignments, write their essays on their cell phones. So obviously that wasn't working very well. I mean, we had kids... I'm teaching now it's, uh, what, December? We still have kids that don't have laptops. They're using these hotspots that are often unreliable. A lot of kids only got one laptop, you know, but there's three or four siblings, so that was really hard. And they were sharing the computer to try to do their schoolwork throughout the day. So So now you've had many months teaching remotely. So how's the experience now that the New York schools have shut down again recently? I was going in in person up until around Thanksgiving. I feel we're making the best of a very difficult situation. 
But what I say the kids are are really sort of learning the same way they would in a physical classroom? I mean, absolutely not. It's really, really hard to expect a 14-year-old, any 14-year-old, but especially a 14-year-old with special needs to sit in front of a computer for, you know, the entire workday and expect them to focus and complete these very difficult online assignments completely unassisted because they're not getting the same support that they were getting in physical school. So every teacher I talk to, every administrator, they're working around the clock to do the best they can given the circumstances, but I don't think it's sustainable. It's definitely, it's very difficult to see that and to feel sort of helpless in that sense, because you know, you're working all day, but you, you still don't have that sense of that you're really sort of breaking through and supporting the kids the way you usually would. Are you concerned about the long-term impacts of this year of very disrupted learning is going to have, particularly in these sort of high-needs school districts, like the one that you're working in? Yeah, so I'm I'm actually much more concerned about the social-emotional effects than the learning stuff. If a kid doesn't learn about the Revolutionary War or the War of 1812, you know, they're going to be okay. But the fact that the kids can't go to physical school, especially for these kids who are living in the shelters or in unstable homes, are experiencing immense trauma this year. And that is not so easy to recover from, especially many of them are in cramped in really, really small apartments with lots of younger siblings. And I know a lot of them are, come from abusive households. So the, this sort of trauma and mental anguish that I know many of the kids are going through this year is going to stay with them for many, many years. And the fact that they don't have school as a safe haven is very worrying and and very troubling because for many kids, school is sort of that one safe place where they know they're going to be safe. They know they're going to get a hot meal. They know they have social workers there. They have guidance counselors there. They have teachers who really care about them. And when you take that away, it can be very difficult for a young kid to to cope. Obviously, the academic stuff is very concerning, too, but more so about the social emotional. Those are my bigger concerns right now. You've mentioned, and we've talked a little bit about this before, that a lot of students in your district are struggling with very serious issues outside of the classroom, issues like poverty and homelessness and domestic violence. And as a teacher, a lot of those issues are often invisible to you. So how do you manage to keep your expectations for students high to challenge them and to push them academically, but also keep in mind that students might be wrestling with some pretty devastating problems that you may or may not be aware of? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. And it's it's something I think about all the time. I mean, just today, I found out that one of my students is living in a domestic violence shelter. And I found out another one had his father just passed away. It's really, really hard because your instinct as a human being is to just try to emotionally support that student in any way that they can. It's hard to tell a student living in a domestic violence shelter, you know, make sure you're reading chapter 42 of your history textbook and answering those three questions. It's like, you know, who can focus on that kind of work when you're not sure you know, if you're physically safe, you're not sure where your next meal is coming from, you maybe probably experienced some trauma not too long ago. So it's really hard. And I don't have sort of a great answer for how I do it. I would say, I think sometimes 
if it's a really extraordinary circumstance, like a child living in a shelter, it's okay for that child's physical, emotional, and sort of safety needs to trump the classwork. I think it's okay to say, okay, let's pause on the, you know, essay we're writing and then let's just make sure, okay, are you safe? Do you have clean clothes? Do you know where your next couple meals are coming from? Is your family safe? I think that that's okay to pause and make sure that those things are met. Because if you think about, I'm sure you all have all seen that Maslow's hierarchy of needs thing. It's hard to sort of focus on the intellectual stuff if your physical needs aren't met. So yeah, but that's that's what I would say to that. It seems like now in particular is a very difficult time to manage that for a lot of people with COVID their sort of already precarious situations have become more precarious and you're remote. So there's this added distance. So it just seems like a very challenging time. Yeah. I mean, in our school, so there's a thousand students, roughly a little less. We have 42 living in shelters. 42 out of a thousand are in shelters, not to mention all of the kids that are maybe homeless, but living with relatives or living with friends and haven't sort of let the school know. You know, there there is a lot of need. New York City has like I think 110,000 homeless students now. It's it's shameful. It's it's really it's really shameful that the government hasn't done more to help and support these kids. So as a teacher, you mentioned a lot of times that teachers can be sort of a a real like constant in a kid's life and can give them a sense of security and the school environment can do that. Obviously, from a distance, there's a limit to what you can do to help any one particular child. But is there anything that you've been doing that you've been finding is helpful, some way to sort of reach out to kids and connect to them from a distance? Yeah, so that's definitely something I'm struggling with now. To I could steal an idea that one of my amazing colleagues had, because she was also really struggling to connect with students and to get them to unmute their microphones and turn their cameras on, which is <laughs> harder than many people think it is. I know what she did was she made weekly sort of spirit days so you know maybe Wednesday would be pajama day and you'd all wear your pajamas and then the kids felt really excited and they had like a little pajama party and then they did their lesson and I know for her a lot of the kids unmuted and (laughs) turned their cameras on so they could show their pajamas one of my colleagues so we have an hour in zoom every day she spends the first 15 or 20 minutes just chatting with the kids making them feel comfortable Don't underestimate the value of social emotional learning time in the classroom. I think it's really powerful and can go a long way in building relationships with your students. Mm. And it sounds like you guys have come up with some pretty creative ways to do that. What do you think makes a good teacher? And do you have any advice for people who are interested in getting into teaching, especially in higher needs districts? Yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of break that down into two separate responses. And and we touched on this last time we chatted, but my advice for people thinking about going into teaching is don't do it unless you are fully and 100% committed. Because these kids cannot afford to have an educator that's only half invested in them. Students in high need schools, if you look at the research, tend to have the least experienced teachers and their teachers leave the schools most frequently. And that really, really hurts them because it snowballs year after year. And these kids need and deserve really 
passionate, experienced educators that are going to be with them throughout the course of the year. Because I think the worst thing you can do is take a job at a high need school and then just leave the kids mid-year because it's too hard for you or just abandon them or sort of not work to your full potential because you're not even sure you want to do it. So then to answer the second part of your question, what makes a good teacher? So I think, and not as if I'm some (laughs) incredible model of a teacher, I definitely have a lot of room to grow as a teacher, but I think really good teachers are the ones that go above and beyond and do more than what is expected to them. And you could definitely say that for a lot of other professions as well. I think the really extraordinary teachers are the ones that go out of the way to reach out to the kids to get to know them on sort of a deeper level outside the classroom, get to know their interests, what, how they learn best, what they're passionate about, make them shine, you know, find out what they're really good at and allow them to shine in their classroom. I think those are the teachers that get a lot more buy-in from the kids and the kids will work a lot harder. So it's been a challenging year and you have a challenging role that can sometimes be emotionally taxing, but i like to end on a positive note because I know that you're very passionate about what you do. So what is your favorite part of being a teacher? Like what makes it all worth it? Oh, definitely the kids. The kids are phenomenal. They make the job so much fun and so exhilarating and they're just such a joy to be around. And I'm always blown away by their attitude and their approach to learning. I mean, many of these kids have faced immense hardship in their life. We have a lot of Yemeni refugees. We have a lot of kids in shelters. We have a lot of kids who have experienced trauma. And the fact that these kids still show up to school every single day, they work really hard, they ask a lot of questions, they're doing all their homework. It is honestly really inspiring to me to see how much they're valuing their education and how much they want to learn and and all of the wonderful questions they ask. And they're just a real joy to be around. They're honestly just so much fun. I just, I love to hang out with them and and to get to know them. So I'm very grateful to them because they make my job a lot of fun, especially the Lehman students. They're top notch. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Allison, thank you so much for talking with us. That's been All in a Day's Work. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log on to our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Lily Smith with episode guest Allison Emanuel. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith, and created with support from Nia Beresford, Daniel Crystal, Dana Rosa, Haley Garofalo, Diana Mendez, Joseph Mercadante, Carrie Pannoni, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in today's work. Thanks for listening.